Welcome to Risking Enchantment, a podcast about art, beauty, and the Catholic faith. Hosted by Rachel Sherlock. Hello and welcome to Risking Enchantment. For this week's episode, you've got myself, Rachel Sherlock, and returning again is Phoebe Watson. Hello. It is a gloriously sunny day in Dublin today, and we don't get too many of those. However, the duty of the podcast has beckoned, and so we've torn ourselves away from the sun outside to come record. And it's important, I think, because this is our last episode um, of this kind of season. We take a break during the summer, and the summer, it seems, has come. Finally. Yes, after weeks and weeks of bad weather and lockdown, we finally have a chance to have a bit of a summer. As well as easing restrictions, we're finally back at Mass. Which is very exciting. So we were at Mass today, we're recording this on Trinity Sunday, so it was a real joy to be at Mass this morning. Um, And yeah, I think I was very anxious to make sure that we had a good send-off for the last episode, and we'll be back in September. I've got lots of exciting things lined up for recording episodes throughout the summer. Um, I also have hopefully a few episodes of different recordings and different talks that I'll be giving or podcasts that I'll be on during the summer potentially, so I will be sharing those as they come out. So not Risky Enchantment, but Risky Enchantment adjacent things. And so if you want to keep up to date for any little extra content that we have during the summer, and I'm hoping also maybe to just have maybe a few writing pieces out. So if you want to keep up with our content uh, over the summer while we take our break, like I said, we'll be back in September. But if that's too much of a stretch for you, um, do make sure to sign up to our newsletter, which is on rachelsherlock.com forward slash podcast. It's just a simple little form and uh, you'll get uh, emails of anything that's coming up that way. Yeah. And nothing too intensive. Nothing too intensive. I do intend to take at least a bit of a summer holiday. Also, you don't spam people from the email. No, I trust me, your only danger is in receiving too few emails from me and not too many. So do not fear, I will not be overloading you with content. I, I am not quite that prolific in my content creation. We're settling down to record this. If it sounds slightly different, I am having my ensuite bathroom renovated which impacts my bedroom where we record because the rest of our flat is quite echoey so this is the least echoey room but um, we are a little bit of a shambles here we can't sit at the desk where we normally record so this is a I'm seeing my room from new angles we've got a we've got our setup in the in the middle of the floor essentially so it's very camp style which I guess is kind of suits the the summer vibe the summer vibe, not so much the book that we're talking about. No, I will say the book that we're talking about, which is North and South by Elizabeth Gaskell, is quite a wintry book. But it does start off with a glorious summer section. Yes. Um, which is very fitting. Yeah, so you can, if, if you want the ideal reading experience, maybe read the first few chapters and then take a break until it's uh, gloomy and rainy outside and read the rest. <laughs> Do you then wait when it gets like hot again and like wait another six months? <laughs> Phoebe likes to tease me because I have a particular 
uh, like unconscious preference for reading books in what I call their seasons. And so there are summer books and there are winter books and I assign them often without much regard for any actual knowledge of the book. I will do this before I have ever read them and assume that a, a book is a summary book or not. But it's a, it's a, an ongoing discussion, maybe one that we will dive into more deeply at some point. It also inhibits what she's reading because she tries very much to read things that are suitable to the season. Yes. Which I can understand. My problem with this concept is that a lot of these books that we talk about, if they're very seasonal, they usually have more than one really striking season. Yeah, like The Wind in the Willows. Yeah. We had that last year where I, it was it was a great summer book, but I agree there's a really fantastic winter passage in mm-hmm. it. So I, I, I in no way consider this to be a flawless system. Uh, that's why I said it was unconscious. I, if I were to make it into a real system, I don't think it would actually work. <laughs> it is just your system. This is my, my mind's working, but... And your excuse for not reading certain things because you can't categorise them. Yeah, I was saying it actually kind of... That was why I was teasing her. Yeah, the biggest source of enjoyment for Phoebe is that I struggle to read science fiction because if it doesn't take place on Earth, I struggle to assign it to a season to read it in. <laughs> but anyway... Which I find hilarious. That that is a a total tangent. So the book we are discussing is North and South by Elizabeth Gaskell, which I had not read until this Until I bullied you into it? Until you had bullied me into it. For about three years? (laughs) I was getting to it. It was on my list. Um, I have watched the BBC miniseries, and I think people will be more familiar with the BBC miniseries than necessarily having read it. It's an excellent series. It's a very good representation of the book. Yes, I do think it, it, it does a very good job of capturing the book. Like, there are some minor differences, but overall, it, at least to me in my memory, I think it was very much like having the book on screen. And Richard Armitage plays the, the hero of the story, which is always a good thing, and it's a beautifully shot and yeah I would really recommend the miniseries however the book itself is wonderful and definitely worth reading and has a lot of really interesting things to explore in some ways it feels in the line of you have your Jane Austens which are more light and witty and funny and then you have your Brontes which are more a little bit more moody and dark and in a way self-important and that they're they're just a little bit more serious. And I think North and South, which follows on chronologically, it, it happens in the Victorian era as opposed to the, the Regency era. But Yeah, about 1850s. 1850s. And Gaskell was friends with Charlotte Bronte. So this is very much that kind of continuation of that, I guess, legacy of female writers in England. But... It does fall a little bit between the two. I feel like it's a really lovely love story, but it also has a, a, a lot of quite interesting social commentary mixed in with it. Yeah, it was published by Dickens in his magazine Hard Times as a serial. Mm-hmm. And because of that, both Gaskell and Dickens share a lot of concern for the working class and how the working class is portrayed. And in this particular book, they're also talking quite a lot about the divide between the like manufacturing north and the still more traditional, rural, rural cultured, aristocratic south. Mm-hmm. And it, that's hence the title of the book, North and South. And when it was recommended to me in college, it was recommended as the Victorian Pride and Prejudice. Yeah. The love story does follow, in some ways, a similar arc 
to Pride and Prejudice. There is that sense of two people who are thrown together who come from very different points of view in some ways and butt heads and like get on each other's nerves and see the worst in each other and make mistakes in front of each other and of course I don't think it's going to be a spoiler to say that they get together at the end and you're rooting for them all the time. Just in terms of spoilers we will try and avoid anything that's like really significant to the plot but it's a long book and there'll be certain things that we'll have to say. Yeah, in some ways I feel like the overall plot is less of a spoiler, like two people who don't like each other, maybe you fall in love with each other, get together. That part of it is relatively what you would expect from a novel and in some ways I don't feel like that's a spoiler. However, there are like points that are distinctive to North and South that make it different from uh, Pride and Prejudice or that like distinguish it from others of the genre that will kind of leave those as as much alone as we can just to give you that that experience of reading it fresh. The plot essentially centers on uh, Margaret Hale and her family. Um, she is the daughter of a vicar and they live in this very idyllic rural setting of Helston with this house covered in roses and it's beautiful. Now, Margaret's actually been raised in London and it opens with her aunt and her cousin in London and she's had this time spent in more like sophisticated circles but her cousin's getting married, it's time for her to move out, things are changing so she, she returns to the home of her heart, Helston, and it is very idyllic. The opening chapters are very lush. Yeah, it's very clear as well that Margaret has idealised Helston in comparison to London. She doesn't really like London. Mm -hmm. She misses her family. She's very glad to be going back to Helston. Yeah. And really enjoys the countryside freedom of it. Yeah. And it is just beautiful. Yeah, and she in that way in in that particular circle there isn't very much like high society. It is very rural, it is quite poor in a lot of ways and while her family like her father as the vicar would be obviously more distinguished than the laborers and the farmers, it is still that kind of community in a way. It's not particularly distinguished. Yeah, they're quite isolated in that they don't have any other society of their equals mm -hmm. in uh, like in terms of education or conversation even yeah um they are very much on their own among the uneducated yeah i guess yeah so that's not too uncouth a way of saying it <laughs> yeah i suppose and then what happens is and this is where we get to the crux and i'm going to introduce the theme of this podcast which is that margaret's father announces to her that he, as a vicar, has been struggling with doubts in his belief, not in God, but in the church and in, in, in the Church of England. Yeah, it's not made clear at all in the book. And deliberately so. And deliberately so, what the actual problem is. But we did a little bit of background re research and him disagreeing with the Church of England, imposing its authority on people dictating what they should believe, specifically dictating that they should be members of the Church of England, I yeah. think. But it becomes very much a matter of conscience for him, which is, I think, the crux of the first point that we're going to talk about. Yeah, so in this episode we're going to be talking, there's a sort of recurring theme, explored in a quite a lot of different ways, but about either conscience or honour, keeping your word, like these, these very core principles which were in some ways so taken for granted in aristocratic Victorian society that this is something that you would really 
want to uphold as a good person and in some ways they're kind of slightly unfashionable virtues these days and so yeah yeah and I think even in that those days it's Elizabeth Gaskell calling people to these virtues Mm -hmm. in a similar way that Jane Austen does that they're virtues that they're held up as idealized but they're not necessarily even then what people are actually living out exactly so as we go through the plot, we'll kind of highlight where we're going to pick up on these themes. So this is the first example. We're going to talk a little bit about conscience. But it means that Mr. Hale decides to give up his living and his vocation and to leave Helston. And uh, and he takes a job as a tutor in a, a fictionalised northern town called Milton, which, Phoebe, you were saying is based on Manchester. Yeah, the forward of my book said that it was probably based on Manchester, based on, like, it's proximity to the sea and stuff Mm -hmm. like that yeah and so you have this enormous shift from the bucolic the pastoral to this grimy dirty manufacturing town that has all of the the sort of mechanisms of the industrial era and all of the commerce and the busyness and all of the things that are like just diametrically opposed to the sort of hard but in some ways peaceful experience of the southern rural life yeah it's just very grimy and it kind of aggressive place as well when they first come yeah margaret really doesn't like it (laughs) yeah and so she meets mr thornton who's uh, the owner of a factory and he is agreed to be the the pupil of mr hale so now mr hale not not a, a vicar, is now a tutor, and he is tutoring a couple of people, but mainly this up-and-coming kind of factory owner called Mr Thornton. And we all know where this is going. <laughs> yeah, well, Mr Thornton is, I think, probably the eldest of his pupils and the one who becomes his friend. Yeah. So he's the one who becomes part of their society in Milton. Yeah, and we don't want to give away too much of the plot here. Obviously, there are occasions where Margaret and Mr Thornton are thrown into into society together. Then we have also another plot point, which is that not only is Margaret beginning to interact with the kind of upper echelons of this society, um, in terms of the factory owners, but she becomes friends with the workers as well. And in particular, this family, Higgins, and the father, Nicholas Higgins, and his daughter, Bessie Higgins. And the friendship that she develops is a real true friendship. And I think that's a lovely part of the story. I think Gaskell does a great job of giving working class people like a voice and a dignity in the, in the novel. And there's a, there's this whole tension between Higgins and Thornton and the workers and the, the factory owners. There's a, there's a strike in the middle of it. There's questions of whether factory owners should prohibit people from joining unions and like what is the role of a manager or someone in charge of people like how much can you impose on your workers how much can you expect from them how much can they expect from you there's a lot of really interesting social commentary kind of wrapped up in all of this and then of course you have a lot more personal stories within that there are health problems within the Hale family and uh, they don't quite live up to their name of Hale and Hardy. <laughs> There's a story which involves Margaret's brother who has been exiled due to kind of a misunderstanding during his his service on on the seas and so he's not able to return home and he wants to return home because of this illness and so there's a, a kind of a, a story of subterfuge in that way and equally Mr Thornton is kind of wrestling with his own desires to instigate like a, a good and just 
working environment then also the problems that that causes with trying to accrue money and, and speculation and what is the right thing to do and what is owed to the people you employ so there's a lot of kind of interesting subplots within this overall romance story as it were yeah it's quite a complex book but i think he did a good job summarizing it but again we would just highly recommend the book as well it's definitely worth the effort put into reading it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we're, like I said, we're going to pull up on some particular points and we'll explain those, the, the context of the plot in a bit more detail around those. But as we said, it's a little bit tricky to sort of get it all into one podcast. So hopefully this hasn't been too too confusing. But I think, like we mentioned, we're going to start with Mr. Hale's doubts. Yeah, and, that is it. <laughs> and I think it's a really interesting exploration of, like I said, I think I'm planning on calling this episode Keeping Your Word. There's a kind of core to all of this, which is like, what do you believe? When you say something, do you keep to it? Do you lie? Do you obfuscate? Can you live with yourself if you're a hypocrite? And it, it's manifested in a lot of different ways throughout the story. Yeah, and also do you do what your conscience bids you to do or accept the kind of worldly conscience of what the world sees as acceptable, which is always a lower bar. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's really interesting for this day and age just because I feel like the idea of breaking a promise or breaking your word, we've just breezed past that in some ways. Like, but from our own selves to politicians to celebrities to the way that we say like marriages you can stand up in front of all of your friends and say I will take this person for the rest of my life then it's like oh 72 hours later maybe not (laughs) Um, yeah and also that there's like this vein of understood honesty mm -hmm. that is very crucial and therefore an understanding of the sin which comes with being dishonest yeah we're just gonna pull out some of the the moments because the occasion of Mr. Hale's doubts is really interesting because I think it shows someone who is willing to essentially destroy the life that they have built up and move away from every comfort and every um, career opportunity and every kind of social dignity in order to be true to their religious belief and not to lie and also not to lie by omission to actually stand by this and I think it's really interesting because that in itself is good yeah however how he goes about doing it is very painful and hurtful to the people around him and I think it's interesting he keeps saying like oh if only I weren't married if only I didn't have to consult with other people and Gaskell was married to a vicar I believe William Gaskell and she was very much entrenched in this religious world of England at this time and was yeah I think she was also the daughter of a unionist preacher yeah so one of the dissenting preachers yeah and she had a lot of friends and a lot of different experiences of life and so her novels actually really fairly reflect this like I I was kind of surprised to see such an even-handed approach to all kinds of faiths and all kinds of paths within Christianity in particular but as a Catholic reading it when you hear all of his complaints you kind of think this is why priests shouldn't get married There's a solution to this. <laughs> and this is where it's easier to be Catholic. Because when you're Catholic, if your conscience is telling you something that goes against the actual teachings of your church, you know which the higher authority is. And yep. it's probably not your conscience. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So what he does is he's been pondering over this for quite a while and wrestling with it. 
And then he's given an opportunity to get a more prestigious job, but it would force him to restate his vows. And I think this is like the crux moment where he says he can't go anymore. And not only that, not only can he not take the job because it would mean that he would have to take these public vows, but he realizes that even just staying where he is to avoid taking the vows is not good enough. It is it is hypocritical. And it is that tremendous moment of courage where his conscience compels him to no longer hold the position that he holds in society with all of the worldly entrapments that go with that. At the time, him being a vicar is his family's source of income, their home, mm-hmm. it is their standing in society. Everything is tied up with that. Mm-hmm. And it does take a tremendous amount of courage to make that decision and that renunciation. And and that it costs him so much, he says, my anxiety for years past to know whether I had any right to hold my living, my efforts to quench my smouldering doubts by the authority of the church. Oh, Margaret, how I love the holy church from which I am to be shut out. And that is a really painful reflection. And it does take courage to say that. However, <laughs> when he says this to Margaret, it is at the last possible moment. <laughs> he, he springs this on his daughter uh, two weeks before he has to leave. He's already, so the bishop offered him a living and he has already written back and said all of this and p- then put a load of plans in place. Mm-hmm. And now two weeks before they have to leave their home. Yeah, he tells his daughter, and not only that, he tells his daughter and then asks her to tell his wife. (laughs) He hasn't told his wife at all. Horrible. And it's so painful, and it's so interesting to see how someone can have the bravery to take a real leap of conscience, but not the sort of fortitude needed to reflect on even if there is a sacrifice to be made even if you say that this is going to be painful no matter what there's still a a due amount of respect to your friends and loved ones to tell them and to involve them and to not like spring it on them at the last minute and it's a really interesting example of how you can be both right and wrong at the same time yeah he says margaret i am a poor coward after all i cannot bear to give pain i know so well your mother's married life has not been all that she hoped all she had a right to expect and this will be such a blow to her that i have never had the heart the power to tell her she must be told though now and And then then he just looks at margaret like you do it yeah can you can you please do it i'll be out all day tomorrow you go do it it's also interesting to see how caught up he is in his own suffering in this and not to say that there isn't any suffering but to then it's like he refuses to tell anyone about it so that he he alone can rule what he thinks is best to do. And what he thinks is best to do is to best suit his own feelings on the topic. So uh, Margaret asks, where should we go? Could we move to Oxford where you have friends? Could we go to Wales where there might be a, a similar kind of situation that we could find ourselves in a small country cottage? Or something like that. And he says, no, I've already got it arranged. We're going to this manufacturing town that is so totally against everything that we've ever loved because because then I won't be reminded of where we've left. (laughs) And I want to be busy and that's all that matters. He says, 
That would not answer. I must do something. I must make myself busy to keep off morbid thoughts. Besides, in a country parish, I should be so painfully reminded of Helston and my duties here. I could not bear it, Margaret, and a hundred, ye- a, hundred a year would go a very little way after the necessary wants of housekeeping are met towards providing your mother with all the comforts she has been accustomed to and ought to have. No, we must go to Milton. That is settled. I can always decide better for myself and not influenced by those whom I love, he said, as a half-apology for having arranged so much before he had told any one of his family of his intentions. I cannot stand objections. They make me so undecided. Oh, it's just so painful. And you do see when Margaret is telling her mother about this, one of the first things her mother says about it is, he has doubts, you say, and gives up his living, and all without consulting me. I dare say, if he had told me his doubts at first, I could have nipped them in the bud. And so you do kind of see that dichotomy in the relationship of the mother not fully valuing that call of conscience, and therefore dismissing it of like, oh, I could have nipped that in the bud, I could have sorted that out. Yeah. So there is that side of it as well. And in some ways, it really reminds me of when I was becoming a Catholic. Even though that decision didn't affect anyone other than me in any material sense, it still had quite a big emotional impact on the people around me. And the way that I went about telling them was in some ways related to me wanting to have everything sorted out before I told anyone. Mm -hmm. And realising afterwards that by forcing myself down that route, it caused more pain for those around me because they hadn't been involved from the beginning and I didn't trust them enough to tell them before I had everything settled. Yeah. Um, so I think there is that element there as well. Like, there is a balancing act to do that mm-hmm. I think particularly when it comes to our own conscience that we can have too many people informing it. Mm-hmm. And as we see with some of the other people talking about Mr. Hale's decision, the world thinks this is an utterly ridiculous thing to do. And many people think him very weak for it, mm-hmm. think that he's just given in to a temptation for it, when it has in fact taken a great deal of courage. Mm-hmm. And the so there is that side of those voices don't help you make a decision of conscience. Yeah. But at the same time, rather than owing it to the outside world to inform your conscience, mm-hmm. you owe it to the people nearest and dearest to you yeah. to at least know what you are thinking about. Yeah. And I think the other way in which I think he does very poorly by his family is that it, we mentioned that the book leaves it kind of vague what his doubts are. And that is not just because of the narration style. That is because he literally doesn't tell them. And when he breaks it to Margaret, he says, Margaret, I will tell you about it. I will answer any questions this once. But after tonight, let us never speak of it again. I can meet the consequences of my painful, miserable doubts. But it is an effort beyond me to speak of what has caused me so much suffering. And... I totally understand that what he is going through is very painful, but there is a real want of compassion to the people who love him best to have any say in the things that he thinks or even just to hear about them. Yeah, it's not even about having a say in it, but knowing what the case actually is and 
being able to talk about it with him. Even yeah. like it's not about saying that oh he should have let his wife talk him out of it. Yeah. But his wife and daughter also deserve to know why their lives were being changed, upended. upended in such a dramatic fashion. Yeah, and I think, you know, and we're going to talk a little bit about this further, but in one case, there's his wife who, for reasons that they have kind of allowed themselves to exist in separate worlds for a while, and in this way that she feels like she has a right to tell him what to think. And I can see how that would be difficult to, to talk to her about it. However, his daughter has never been in any way against him or tried to talk him out of his... Like, she's always been very supportive of him. And so the fact that he won't tell not not just his wife, but also his daughter, who would want to listen and would want to sympathise and would want to understand and not just talk him out of it, it feels like a real injustice to her. Definitely. And then what he lands her in, having done that, is... Like, an absolute chaos of organisation. Like, everything... It's so like a man. I know. She's like, well, we have to move the furniture. Have you thought about moving the furniture? No. Oh, we have to find a place to live. Have we found a place to live? No. (laughs) Where are we to go? We have to leave here in two weeks. She's just left to kind of figure everything out herself. And this was not really an age where women were necessarily expected to do anything of this kind. But she's also 19. Yeah, it feels so harsh. And we were saying that, like, in regards to his wife, it's it's interesting that I can definitely sympathise with being afraid of having a kind of constant nagging to change your mind and to have, like, to second-guess yourself. But there is a sense that as his wife, it's his duty to bear that. Like, she shouldn't be doing that. That's not correct. However... It's interesting that he has this one big breakthrough of his conscience and this one moment of courage to say, this is going to happen. And then it's like he fails to live up to all of the small moments that are necessary to make that that moment of courage actually truly good. Yeah, in some ways it's a really interesting parallel to a decision his wife made, which was to marry him even though he was a poor vicar. But she then really struggled with the poverty that came with that and the loss of situation that came with that. Mm -hmm. And she was able to make the big sacrifice, Mm -hmm. but not all the little ones that came along the way. And I think that's the exact same problem we see with Mr. Hale. Like, even to the end, I think it is really important to say that he he never regrets that decision to the extent of trying to turn back on it completely. Like, there is a moment where he's like, oh, if I'd known how much pain there was. Mm -hmm. But in the end of it, he does say that if I could have foreseen all that would come out of my change of opinion and my resignation of my living, even if I could have known how she would have suffered, I would have done just the same as far as the steps of openly leaving the church went. I might have done differently and acted more wisely in all that I subsequently did for my family. I think that is a really good reflection on him looking back at that, being like, I was still right to make the big decision that I did. Yeah. But the things I did around that, I did badly. And I think it's really interesting. I picked up on it earlier. She actually directly quotes Newman later in the book, but she kind of obliquely quotes Newman around this time, saying this reference of Margaret sighed as she rose to go to bed, in spite of the one step's enough for me, in spite of the plain duty of devotion to her father, there lay at her heart an anxiety and a pang of sorrow. And when I heard that, I thought, one step's enough for me. Of course, that's Newman. And I think 
thinking Saint John Henry Newman. Saint John <laughs> Henry Newman and Elizabeth Gaskell attended quite a few of Newman's lectures. She was well known with Newman. She studied his sermons. It's so, so fascinating to suddenly realize how these authors related. Exactly. So I just think it's really interesting in that question of conscience. So I just have a few quotes about Newman on conscience just to kind of round it out. And he says, this law as apprehended in the minds of individual men is called conscience. It still has as divine law, the prerogative of commanding obedience. This law is the rule of our conduct by means of our conscience. Hence, it is never lawful to go against our conscience. This view of conscience I know is very different from that ordinarily taken of it, both by the science and literature and by the public opinion of this day. It is founded on the doctrine that conscience is the voice of God, whereas it is fashionable on all hands now to consider it one way or another a creation of man. And I think he does, uh, I have some further quotes, what he's really getting that is that, that we can't couch what our conscience tells us on what the issues of, of the day that would tell us would make us most comfortable, that our society might say, well, that's more right. It's better to have a good career instead of following your conscience, you know? And then he also has another great quote here, which says, the more a person tries to obey his conscience, the more he gets alarmed at himself for obeying it so imperfectly. His sense of duty will become more keen and his perception of transgression more delicate and he will understand more and more how many things he has to be forgiven. But next, while he thus grows in self-knowledge, he also understands more and more clearly that the voice of conscience has nothing gentle, nothing of mercy in its tone. It is severe, even stern. It does not speak of forgiveness, but of punishment. And I think that's a really harsh, I think obviously like Newman was so centered on this question of conscience and I think his his writings on it are very rich and it's hard to just pull out one quote and give it its due and its, its full context. But I think what I think is really important to pull away from here is just that that conscience does demand a lot from us. Yeah, and I think also in that, um, where Newman's talking around it is that He's also talking about having an informed conscience. Mm-hmm. That it's about, like, listening to your conscience develops it more. Yeah. And also, like, we see with Mr. Hale, he has spent months, even years, wrestling with this decision and reading about it and reading around it. It's mm-hmm. not a, like, spur-of-the-moment rejection. Yeah. But a decision that he has come to by informing his conscience. Yeah. So then I think we're going to move on to our, our second example in the book of uh, of keeping your word. And this is at least a much more clear-cut case in some ways. <laughs> yes, and it is the fact that at a very crucial moment in the story, Margaret tells a lie. <laughs> Four words. <laughs> I was not there. Yeah. Yes, so we mentioned this, that her brother comes to see them and he is... A wanted man, unjustly, he he has a clear conscience and he is unjustly wanted and he is being hunted and hunted out for a reward to be turned in and over to the authorities. And so when he's leaving the family, there's an occasion where a crime happens in proximity to both him and Margaret and they are recognised at the scene and he leaves but she's left to be later question someone someone mentions oh i saw margaret there she might know what happened with this crime and in order to protect her brother who might still be in the country who is leaving the country as quickly as possible she lies and says that wasn't me i wasn't there and it's a really interesting moment because she is so hard on herself for lying in this moment and i think 
we as a society would almost not think twice about whether that was the right thing or the wrong thing to do. We'd be like, of course she tried to protect her brother, it was fine. And even we see later, some the person that she does tell about it automatically tries to justify her in it. And mm-hmm. she's like, no, 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 no. What I did was wrong. And she crucially recognises that what she did was lacking in courage. Mm. That it wasn't that she should have named her brother there, but that she should have, to her mind, she says she should have admitted to being there and refused, had the courage to just refuse to name who she was with. Yeah. Uh, which is a much harder situation to put yourself in. Mm-hmm. It's much easier to tell a forward lie Yeah. Um, than to face up to a constant battering of who was it, who was it, who was it. Yeah. But she recognises that failing in herself and, yeah, very much holds herself accountable to it, which I think is just something that we can really learn from. Yeah, I have a great Chesterton quote here, which I think really informs it. He says, Men do not differ much about what things they will call evils. They differ enormously about what evils they will call excusable. I love it. He's always great. Yeah, and that, um, from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, truth is uprightness in human action and speech. It's called truthfulness, sincerity, or candour. Truth or truthfulness is the virtue which consists in showing oneself true in deeds and truthful in words, and in guarding against duplicity, dissimulation, and hypocrisy. Yeah, and I think... It's so interesting to have a character who really recognises the failure of a lie and to see it as important. I really feel like there are very few times now where people would be that morally disturbed by having lied. Yeah, and I think that as well as like Margaret telling a direct untruth, when someone else is trying to like tell her that oh it was okay (laughs) so the person talking to margaret about this is trying to justify her and says true that was bad i own not but what i have told a pretty round number in my life not all in downright words as i suppose you did but in actions or in some shabby circumlotary way leading people either to disbelieve the truth or believe a falsehood I think to me that's really telling that even if we're not directly lying, we can very easily justify misdeception and misdirection. It's like, well, the words themselves are true, but the implication they give or the information left out maybe wasn't. But on the flip side of that, there's a point where Margaret is challenged about it by someone who doesn't really have the right to be challenging her on a matter of her behaviour. And she refuses to explain herself because that would mean naming her brother. And who doesn't want, like, they don't want it to be known that he was in the country. And because of that, she accepts the shame of having this other other person think badly of her rather than explain herself and betray someone else which I think is the really interesting flip side that not everyone is owed the truth in its entirety as it pertains to all your actions that's only owed to certain people Mm -hmm. who are related to you but everybody is owed the truth yeah 
Yeah, I think that's really good. I think it, it reminds us that it's not about telling everybody every detail of your life all of the time. Or yeah, it's not about even justifying yourself all of the time. Absolutely. And I think it's also, yeah, there's a sense of not oversharing that there is a degree of privacy which your closest relations do like demand in some way that it is not about airing your dirty laundry all the time or or and from from the other point of view knowing that you are not owed every detail about someone's life certainly like, that especially if someone comes to share a particularly painful part of their life with you and say, I have a really broken relationship in this way, that it's not up to you to inquire about all of the dark details and what went wrong where and what did they do and what is their their crimes in your eyes, but to just listen to that person to what they want to share and to pray with them and to pray for them and to be present to them and not to pry that like it works both ways that you have to find a way to live in the truth and to not be a hypocrite and to not be um, a liar and to live truthfully without necessarily always sharing all of the details, but at the same time to uh, give other people the same space as well. Yeah, and I think even that there can be a virtue in not giving all of the details mm -hmm. equally. Like Margaret, in that particular instance, to explain herself would have been for the sake of her pride and for the sake of her standing in somebody else's eyes. Yeah. And there's a real humility in allowing that misconception for the sake of something else. Yeah. Which is just a really interesting flip side. Yeah, and because one of the people who witnessed her at the at, at, at this crime was Mr Thornton, this man who she is now at long last beginning to to esteem his opinion of her and now suddenly she finds herself caught in a lie and caught in what looks like quite a, a, a like a dodgy situation scandalous even scandalous and she can't justify herself to him because she can't do so without breaking her promise to her brother and she just has like it's it's really interesting to see her courage in saying i can't rectify the situation without breaking an oath in another way. And so I have to live with these, this consequence, you know? And that it's really painful to bear, but almost like you said that it's not just about her fixing her own pride and her own ego and say, no, 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 actually I was in the right, don't worry, I'm a, I'm, I promise I'm a good person. Now, on some level, Mr. Thornton, and he does eventually learn the truth, but he is owed a certain degree of the truth. But it, it is the nature of human existence that we are always constantly weighing up what is owed to one person versus what is owed to another. I love what she says when she's reflecting on it because it turns out, and I think this is such a classic true to life twist of fate, that when the police asked her about her brother, her brother was already out of the country and she might have even known about it because he sent a, a letter which should have arrived earlier than it did. And so she's found that the, the moment of her lie was actually unnecessary that he was already in safety and so it was fruitless to even do it and I think that's such a true to life experience of saying like I did this thing I really regret and I didn't even need to do it you know and she says oh what slight cobwebs of chances stand between us and temptation Frederick had been safe and out of England 20 nay 30 hours ago and it was only about 17 hours since she had told a falsehood to baffle pursuit which even then would have been vain how faithless she had been if she had but dared to bravely tell the truth as regarded to herself defying them to find out what she refused to tell concerning another how light of heart she would have now felt 
not humbled before God as having failed in trust towards him, not degraded and abashed in Mr. Thornton's sight. And she goes on to say, of all the faults, the one she most despised in others was the want of bravery, the meanness of heart, which leads to untruth. And here had she been guilty of it. I think that's also a really interesting measure of when we're telling the truth because we are required to tell the truth. Mm-hmm. And when we're telling the truth just of ourselves. Mm. Because the truth which we are required to tell is the one that takes courage to say. Yeah, It's often the one that puts us in a humiliating position or puts us in a difficult position. And that's where courage and fortitude come in, where that, as C.S. Lewis says, it's the virtue at its testing point. Mm. That you need the courage to see that virtue of truthfulness through its testing point. Mm-hmm. Whereas, if it doesn't take courage to tell the truth, if it's something you're dying to get in there because it would justify you and set you right in the world, yeah, maybe that's actually not the kind of truth you're asked to be telling. Yeah, that plays into your ego, that plays into your vanity, that wants the world to see you as you think you ought to be seen. And even when it's just a question of righting a wrong, and, you know, we we do have a right to not be held falsely accused, but that when it's just a question where you could let it go, where you could maybe otherwise just the humility of appearing less than you think is your due. I, I think you mentioned that this came up at the story of a soul with St. Therese of Lisieux. Mm, yeah, so in the story of a soul, um, St. Therese of Lisieux talks about an instance where she's blamed for having broken a vase or something and the superior is scolding her for it and she just meekly takes that instead of throwing her fellow nun and sister under the bus mm-hmm. um, and saying, no, it was actually this other person. In humility, she allows herself to be thought less of than she is. Or there's another instance where an elder nun thinks that she's being petted, that she's been sent off for her like morning walk and comments on it every time. And she's actually being sent off to work in the garden. Mm-hmm. And she doesn't correct that. Mm. And... I don't, like, it doesn't sit very comfortably with me. I think that maybe in some ways we also have a duty to not allow others to commit the sin of misjudging us mm-hmm. completely. Yeah. Um, that there is possibly an element of that. But at the same time, it is really interesting that she doesn't allow anything to do with her own feelings about that to inform her actions yeah. there. She doesn't just try and justify herself and be thought better of because of it. Yeah, there's that balance of humility, but also in, in proper correction that, yeah. that needs to come into place. And I think that comes into a little bit of um, our third main point, which is in the character of Nicholas Higgins, who is a fantastic character. He's a fantastic character in the miniseries. Really recommend. He's this very self-assured, but also very thoughtful man who exemplifies the the greater moral fortitude and character and coming from the lower class which I think is is something that Gaskell and Dickens is trying to get across that that virtue isn't just the preserve of the of the upper classes yeah it's one of the wonderful things about Gaskell that she portrays both virtue and weakness across all of the classes. Mm -hmm. She humanises all of them. Yeah. Which I think is just such a talent. Absolutely. And so Nicholas Higgins has a lot of 
comments about he's very tied up in this idea of the union and the strike. And I think it's really interesting. Uh, we're going to come to exactly the crux moment of, of his kind of moment of moral fortitude. But even in talking about the strikes and the unions, he talks about how when the factory owners demand that their workers not join a union, when they bar them from doing it, eventually all they'll do is make them liars, that they'll do it anyway and just lie about it. And that's worse. He says, and it's written, just just to be clear, we're not trying out our accents for the fun of it. It is very much written phonetically in the accent that you're supposed to read it in. So just bear with us. I had to get Rachel to play it on her audiobook to get this accent into my head. But it's great. So um, don't judge us too much for, for reading it in the accent. But he says... Hampers, that's where I worked, makes their men pledge themselves. They'll not give a penny to help the union or keep turnouts from clemming. Clemming is starving. They may pledge and make pledge, continued he scornfully. They know but make liars and hypocrites. And that's less a sin to my mind to make men's hearts so hard that they'll not do a kindness to them as needs it or help on the right and just cause, though it goes again the strong hand. But I'll never forswear myself for the work the king could give me. I'm a member of the union and I think it's the only thing to do the workmen any good. So he refuses to take this pledge. He refuses to say that he, he refuses to make himself into a liar because he knows he will always help those who need it in the way of like giving money to those who are striking and supporting those who are striking. Yeah, and just for a little bit of context there, all working men who are part of the union would contribute to the union so that the union had money to give people when they were striking so that they wouldn't starve. Yeah. And that worked across towns. Yeah. So that even if they weren't striking at the time, Mm -hmm. that was going to maybe help another town that was in that situation. Yeah, and he says, it's a new regulation at ours and I reckon they'll find that they cannot stick to it, but it's in force now. And by the by, they'll find out tyrants make liars oh that's interesting so i just think he's he's so interesting in the way that he both stands for the people that he wants to support and there is like it is a very nuanced view she does also give the other side of the factory owner's perspective and we'll we'll come to that a little bit in mr thornton in a second but just that real principle he won't break the strike he will support the people he's striking with he won't make a pledge that he can't keep and, and he, he won't lie and make the pledge and just not keep it anyway yeah and so he's been put in this really really difficult situation and then he takes an even further leap of principle of responsibility of conscience and that is there was a character who he was in very much conflict with who was very antagonistic to him who broke the strike who was very difficult to deal with and he ends up dying and leaving behind a whole load of children and Higgins feels responsible for these children and so he just takes them all in like, there's like five or six of them. There's like a whole bunch of kids. Maybe even seven. <laughs> it could be more. And he just says, no, I was tied up with the faith of this man. And yeah. it is my responsibility now to look after them. Yeah, and then when he's taking them in, he then has to go and look for work again and take that humiliation. And he says, I would ne'er ask for work for myself, but then left as a charge on me. I reckon I would have gouted the man to a better end, but set him off on the road and so I'm an answer for him. He holds himself accountable for what happened. Yeah. And what's also really striking to me is that he 
does so in a way that doesn't allow him to take any credit for it. Mm-hmm. He's not the noble neighbor taking in these people out of the goodness of his heart. He's saying that it's no more than anyone else would do. Yeah. And I think there's just that real humility there that it's such a powerful contrast of holding to what your conscience calls you to do, mm-hmm. which is a much higher standard than anyone else would do and many others acknowledge I couldn't have done it myself yeah but also saying that it's no more than anyone would do he won't take it as something special and because he won't take it as something special he doesn't let himself off the hook for it yeah that he's not any better than anyone else for doing it yeah and he puts himself in this really tricky situation where he won't lie so he can't work anywhere where they are asking him to take this pledge not to join a union but he also won't allow himself to pass off the responsibility of the children to anyone else. And so he, he considers moving across the country. He considers like anything that will, any back-breaking work, anything at all, no matter how miserable it would make him, as long as he can work within his own principles and feed the children. And it's really interesting to see someone who holds the line on their principles in terms of this pledge about the unions, but also invests in the responsibilities that he sees and not passing them off to anyone else and again i'm gonna i'm you know chesterton's so good for this kind of thing but he says most modern freedom is at root fear it is not so much that we are too bold to endure rules it is rather that we are too timid to endure responsibilities that's actually to me such an interesting contrast to mr hale because mr hale even though he can make that act of conscience really struggles under the burden of the responsibilities that come with it. Yeah. Whereas Higgins just really steps up to the plate and doesn't allow any sympathy even. Mm -hmm. That he's not agonising over his pain or humiliation in looking for that work because the children will starve and he will not let the children starve. Yeah, absolutely. And so in the end, he... He's persuaded to go and ask Mr. Thornton for a job and he has to wait five hours to even talk to him. And it's such a interesting moment of Mr. Thornton, who, again, it, like Higgins taking in the children is such a sort of overstep of virtue and, and, and principles that he doesn't even believe it. You know, he was like, that that can't be true. You can't have just taken in all of these children out of the goodness of your heart. And what's nice about Higgins is that he has conducted himself well enough that he says you can go to the owner of the factory that I used to work for and ask for a reference from me and even though he left because he wouldn't take the pledge well I think Mr Thornton says like oh your master wouldn't give you a good reference and his justification for himself is like what better reference could they give for me than that I held to my own principles Mm -hmm. and within the bounds of the law yeah and that he still believes that he would find that he's recommended as a good yeah. worker, as someone who doesn't skive off, as someone who gives what's due to his master. He conducts all the parts of his life as well as he can within these principles so that even when there is a disagreement and even when they, he is out of step with someone, that it's never to the extent that his good name has been tarnished in some way. Yeah, and Mr Thornton then does him the justice of asking around about him and finds this out, which is so cool. Yeah, it's really, really cool. Yeah. And I think that brings us to our last point, which is just on on Mr. Thornton and his 
business approaches. And I think this is a really interesting way in which honour and dignity and oath keeping come into our modern day that, again, we just don't think about. Like, there is this huge question of Catholic social teaching of the just wages of workers, of the just living conditions, of the just, just working conditions. And what does it mean to sell items at less than their worth or more than their worth or to risk investments or to a lot of things about destroying the landscape of something to cut down trees in order to make something like how do you go about building a business that embodies your principles and values definitely and because of the strike mr thornton has ended up in quite a difficult position and he's offered this speculation mm-hmm. that he could invest in and come out clear. Yeah. And no one would ever need to know. And nobody would, like, he, he could get off scot-free and no one would have to know that he was ever in trouble. Like, the embarrassment of saying, oh, I was a bit short on cash for a while. Not, yeah, not even the embarrassment of saying that. But he's threatened with having to fold in everything mm-hmm. and give up his position and take that really deep humiliation as well as like at this point he's building quite a good relationship with Higgins and and, and his workers in general he's yeah. in, he's invested in his workers he set up this like uh, communal kitchen for them so that they are fed and that he spends time with them in it and that it's actually you know a relationship between him and his workers yeah they finally come to that merging of classes and you could say that that to me, it would be really easy to justify that good deed, mm-hmm. or like that, the continuation of that good work, and because of that, to invest in the speculation. But because it wouldn't be his money, it would be his creditors' money, mm-hmm. he refuses to do that. And he holds himself not as a failure because he can pay his men and pay his creditors and resign with honour. I think that's such a great point of courage, mm-hmm. again, that he will not speculate with other people's money. Yeah. Yeah, when he's talking to his mother. And by the way, I'm going to give a shout out. Mrs. Thornton is as a character in this book. We haven't had an opportunity to talk about her, but she's the best character in the book. I'll go ahead and say it. She's amazing. I love her. (laughs) I don't know if I'd go that far, but she's pretty great. Yeah. He's talking to his mother and she asks about this speculation and asks what happens if it fails. And he says, honest men are ruined by a rogue, he said gloomily. As I stand now, my creditor's money is safe, every farthing of it, but I don't know where to find my own. It may all be gone and I penniless at this moment. Therefore, it is my creditor's money that I should risk. But if it succeeded, they need never know. Is it so desperate a speculation? I'm sure it is not, or you would never have thought about it. If it succeeded, and he interrupts and says, I should be a rich man and my peace of conscience would be gone. <sighs> and just that idea of, he says, like, I should have run the risk of ruining many for my own paltry aggrandizement. And it's so heartbreaking because he has had to work himself up from absolutely nothing. He begins with nothing and has built up this, not only this factory that has been producing quality materials and is employing lots of people, but like we said, has even gone a step further and tried to be really just and a good place to work and a positive place for his employees. So he's done all of these amazing things and he's about to lose 
everything and his place in society and start again and he even says that like I feel like I'm too old to start again and it's really heartbreaking and again as is want that cruel twist of faith his brother-in-law does make the speculation and it comes off great and that having the nobility to stick by your principles even though like everything goes against you in that way yeah and like Mr Hale you know that even though it could have all turned out well. Mm-hmm. He doesn't regret that decision. Absolutely. There's an essay by C.S. Lewis, which I would recommend to everyone, called The Inner Ring. And it is about this question of where do you compromise on your principles? And especially in the workplace, especially in this at this moment of like, you can either get on the inside of something or the outside. Like, are you going to be on the click on the inside? And what does it mean to make the moral compromises needed to do this? And he says... You will be drawn in, if you are drawn in, not by desire for gain or ease, but simply because at that moment when the cup was so near your lips, you cannot bear to be thrust back again into the cold outer world. It would be so terrible to see the other man's face, that genial, confidential, delightfully sophisticated face, turn suddenly cold and contemptuous, to know that you have been tried for the inner ring. And rejected. And then, if you are drawn in, next week it will be something a little further from the rules, and next year something further still, but all in the jolliest, friendliest spirit. It may end in a crash, a scandal, a penal servitude. It may end in millions, a peerage, and giving prizes at your old school. But you will be a scoundrel. I love that last line of no matter how it ends, you will be a scoundrel. Mm -hmm. And it is definitely that reminder that the end doesn't justify the means. Yeah. Like with Margaret refusing to allow some sin because it achieves a greater end. Yeah. And I think it is really interesting to bring this question of morality into business. And don't get me wrong, like I, I barely understand, but I know I know enough in terms of business to know that it is wildly complicated to feel like you know what the right thing to do is. But it is still a question that we have to ask ourselves. When Margaret is reflecting on her own failure in this lie, she she realises that she's reflecting on all of the ways that she felt so haughtily superior and virtuous when she first came to Milton, that in this like like town of business, that she was the, the exception. She could stand apart from it because she wasn't involved in business. And she says, her cheeks burned as she recollected how proudly she had implied an objection to trade in the early days of their acquaintance, because it too often led to the deceit of passing off inferior goods for superior goods in one branch, of assuming credit for wealth and resources not possessed in the other. She remembered Mr. Thornton's look of calm disdain, as in few words he gave her to understand, in the great scheme of commerce, all dishonourable ways of acting were sure to prove injurious in the long run, and that testing such actions simply accorded to the poor standard of success. There was folly and not wisdom in all such, and every kind of deceit in trade, as well as in all other things. She remembered, she, then strong in her own untempted truth, asking him if he did not think that buying in the cheapest and selling in the dearest market proved some want of the transparent justice which is so intimately connected with the idea of truth. She had used the word chivalric, and her father had corrected her with the higher word Christian. 
And I think that's so, so interesting because I also think that in some ways, Mr. Thornton overstates the winning out of truth there a little bit, that he says that really good business practice is acting honorably and that, you know, bad practices will catch up on you eventually. And maybe I'm just a little bit cynical, but I think we've had quite a long era of business consistently picking bad things and getting away with it and making a lot of money. I don't think that's very cynical. I think that's a rather <laughs> stated fact, which is a problem. Yes, but it doesn't. It still doesn't make it right. Yeah, it doesn't make it right. And I think it also is just such an important reminder that we have to bring these questions back into the sphere of our conversation. Mm-hmm. that it's not acceptable to just write things off because the society permits them. Yeah. That just because it's socially acceptable to do something, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be holding it up against our Christian values in all walks of life yeah. and in every situation. Yeah. I think maybe to round off with one last Chesterton quote, I've, you know, what, one, <laughs> How could we not? one for every point that we've been making. And this is from Orthodoxy. He says, no one doubts that an ordinary man can get on with this world, but we demand not strength enough to get on with it, but strength enough to get it on. Can he hate it enough to change it and yet love it enough to think it worth changing? Can he look up at its colossal good without once feeling acquiescence? Can he look up at its colossal evil without once feeling despair? Can he, in short, be at once not only a pessimist and an optimist, but a fanatical pessimist and a fanatical optimist? Is he enough of a pagan to die for the world and enough of a Christian to die to it? In this combination, I maintain, it is the rational optimist who fails, the irrational optimist who succeeds. He is ready to smash the whole world for the sake of itself. (laughs) I love Chesterton. (laughs) Yeah, and that sense of, like, being reckless enough to be virtuous. Yeah, and that the world is only made better by our going against the, like accepted values to a higher standard and pushing that boundary and holding ourselves to what our conscience calls us to do yeah absolutely i just think it's it's wonderful and i think it really plays into this idea of fashionable and unfashionable virtue yeah definitely (laughs) and it's a great book like we said there's so much in it yes it's a fantastic love story but it's also such an interesting examination of business practices of class of family ties of virtue just there's so much in it definitely yeah it's just so in-depth and rich Yeah, we have one criticism. The end is a little short for us. (laughs) If anyone finds an expanded ending anywhere, please send it to us. But yeah, it's a a wonderful novel. I, I would really recommend it. And it feels very good to have this episode. We've been uh, hoping to do it for a long time. Phoebe has been pushing me to read this book for a long time. I think when we started the podcast, however long ago that was, one of the books that I listed as I wanted to talk about was this book. <laughs> <laughs> so hopefully this will have piqued some interest in people to read the book or at the very least watch or re-watch the miniseries. 
Definitely. And so we just have one last question to ask. Phoebe, what are you enjoying at the moment? Well, in line with the manufacturing cotton trade of Milton, I have been making lace while watching Gardener's World to stay in Helston. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, Gardener's World has been... It's lovely to have that, that TV show back. It's been fabulous. And... Building up all of the plants on our patio. Yeah, it's been great. We've been doing a lot of a lot of gardening. And yeah, Gardener's World is just that, again, that very idyllic, bucolic opening of north and south. This, this is what you should be potting and this is what you should be growing. And here's someone's beautiful garden and look at these flowers. I mean, that's the ideal kind of TV, isn't it? Exactly. Uh, for myself, what I've been enjoying is, we've mentioned this a bunch of times, we're watching lots of Studio Ghibli films. Uh, this has been going on for a while. But for myself, I watched two new ones that I hadn't seen before that I enjoyed very much. One was From Up on Poppy Hill, which I loved. And the other one was Whisper of the Heart, which I thought was amazing. It was one of the, I think, one of my all-time favourite Studio Ghibli films. So... That's what I'm going to say I'm enjoying at the I'm moment. very much enjoying sharing these Studio Ghibli's with you. It's been great. <laughs> yep. So I think that's it. And I think that's it for the summer. Like I said, please do sign up to the newsletter. That way you'll get any any extra content that's floating around in the next couple of months. And you'll get a reminder for when we're back. So, it, you know, you've got nothing to lose. And uh, I'll be trying to keep up some regular updates on the Instagram, just a couple of posts here and there, maybe an update on what I'm reading. But other than that, you can expect us back in September for another season of Risking Enchantment. Thank you so much for listening and we will be keeping all of you in prayer. Goodbye. Bye. This has been Risking Enchantment. Music by Kevin MacLeod. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter with the handle at SeekingWatson. And you can find out more about me and the podcast at rachelsherlock.com. Thank you and God bless.